And we are back. Yes, indeed. Welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, those producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, production designers, sound mixers, sound editors, costume designers, choreographers, composers, um, film editors, you name it, we talk to all of them. And boy, oh boy, you know, we weren't here last week for 4th of July. Uh, We're making up for that today. Uh, I'm going to jump right in here in a second because our first callers are on the line. But just want to let you know, we're going to be talking about Confidential Informant with director and co-writer Michael Oblowitz and one of General Hospital's faves, John Lindstrom, Kevin Collins, and Ryan Chamberlain on GH. John is in Confidential Informant, and John is here with Michael. The midpoint of the show, writer, director, editor Benjamin Pollock is going to be joining me to talk about his new short film that is debuting at the L.A. Shorts Fest on July 20th. But right now, all right, Pam. We're going to bring them live. Pam's Pam's all discombobulated. We have talent call in early, and it's just amazing. John, are, are you there? I am here. Hi, John. Hi, Michael. You there, too? I'm here. Thank you. Very much so. I can't tell you guys. I am so excited to have you guys on the show to talk about Confidential Informant. And, John, thank you, thank you, thank you for making this happen. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, anytime that I get to talk about Michael Oblowitz, it's a good day. <laughs> and this... and time I get to talk with John, you know, we were neighbors for the longest time in Venice. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's how we met. Wow. pellet guns at the drug dealers on the street. Oh, my. Yeah, I know how that is. I'm just over in Culver City. I know. I know it well. (laughs) But uh, this is so exciting to have both of you here. John, you already know I really love Confidential Informant. Uh, I've seen. Yeah, I was so thrilled to, uh, to get that piece of information from you. I have seen various things being written out there and I rarely look at what other people write because quite honestly I don't care Uh, and most of them don't know what they're talking about anyway and I think that's the case here with what I'm seeing some people writing about confidential informant I don't think they understand film noir I don't think they understand what a thriller is and they certainly don't understand uh, filmmaking the components of filmmaking such as editing and cinematography and then performance is a whole other thing. Uh, because for my money, Michael has done an amazing job with this film. It well, is thank you. Thank you very Michael, much. it is steeped in noir. I love the color palette, that sickly kind of green, the, you know, the underfunded uh, precinct office, um, which is, and you perfectly cast Mel Gibson there. But... Uh, I, I've got to say, it's just, on every level, I am beyond impressed with this film. Well, you know what? Again, I'm so happy to hear you say that because I completely agree with you. I it This is, the story itself is something we haven't seen. We're so used to police procedural, procedurals or 
top films. But this really takes a look. It's a character study. This is right. this is absolutely a mm-hmm. character study focusing on Dominic Purcell's character of Tom Moran and Nick Stahl's character of his partner, Mike Thornton, and their relationship. And above that, we get into the brotherhood uh, with Mel Gibson as their captain, Captain Hickey. And then we've got our, our villainous... And I have to say it, Infernal Affairs. When you got Internal Affairs and Mel Gibson, you got to give a shout out to Lethal Weapon 3 and his jokes about Infernal Affairs. Because that's exactly what, you know, Officer Lerner is in wanting to find some dirt on Tom Moran and Mike Thornton. Um, So you have all of these little pieces and we look at the psyche, and we there's commentary here about the police departments themselves and underpaid cops, something that we always hear about. And I know many cops uh, over and have over the decades, a lot of them out of Pacific Division, which you guys should know. Um, mm-hmm. And they many do have always had second jobs because they just don't make enough money to support families. Uh, yeah, you know, and I think I think what Michael, what's really impressive about what Michael created here is that it's a you know a character study in terms of the character of the cops, yeah. the overreaching mm-hmm. cop mentality, which you don't see. In fact, a friend of mine watched it, if I may, Michael, real quickly. Um, mm-hmm. A friend of mine watched it who used to show run a lot of television cop shows. Mm-hmm. And she she watched it over the weekend, and she said, you know, the performances of these two guys in particular being, and I have to include Kate Bosworth in this as well, is that the mentality of these guys was very, very real to her. She worked with a lot of police uh, as, uh, 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 you know, uh, whatever the word is. Um, advisors on mm-hmm. her shows, and she said these guys really bring to the forefront the reality of what a cop has to deal with and the price that they have to pay all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think Michael did an exceptional job in the in the look of the film, the tone of the film, how oppressive it feels on these two guys. So, um, and it's as singular as to me what the great Ken Russell could do. You know, Michael has a very distinctive kind of, he does things that has very special touches in his work. Mm-hmm. And those are evident there. And so I'm done talking. And <laughs> take it away, Michael. <laughs> well, I, I just want to say thank you both for your kind words. I mean, reading some of these reviews, I was wondering what movie they were actually watching. Because yeah. we had one of the legends of cinematography, Andre Barksovia, was at one of the screenings. And Andre has won a number of Academy Awards for cinematography. He was the cinematographer on Prince of the Cities uh, and uh, Terms of Endearment. He's one of the great cinematographers. And he was complimenting Chris Squires, our director of photography, on such a beautiful muted palette and how he controlled the palette and, you know, got a real film noir look. And I'm reading these reviews. Chris and I yesterday were someone accused of him of shoddy camera work, and we were just flabbergasted. I mean, besides the fact that the film was done on a very low budget and we didn't have a long shooting schedule, which is no excuse, 
right? The fact that uh, one of the critics accused the the set of being um, uh, minimal and and uh, the the paucity of the set, he said, right? And I was wondering, uh, did did you actually not watch the film uh, clearly, where it defined the um, the the offices that the that the cops worked in were not police stations per se, but underfunded, as you said, warehouses where they would set up their um, uh, their undercover narcotics operations so as not to draw attention to themselves. In fact, the only uh, police precinct in the movie is is the uh, is the the, the, the station uh, where 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 uh, Moran is. is um, where Thornton is brought, is brought in mm-hmm. uh, for his interrogation. In the third, so yeah. It seems to me that they, that most everyone who saw this movie saw through the lens of a, like an attack on Mel Gibson for whatever his perceived um, uh, crimes against humanity are, for in, you know, in his current, well, you know, the way they perceive his social beliefs or whatever his political beliefs to be. And... Uh, and the film is being criticized through that lens and not even given a chance at all to, um, uh, to, to, to really see the light of day, which it's still managing to do because it's got very good placement on uh, Amazon Prime. So I encourage everybody yeah. to go and watch. You know, Michael, if I may, I mean, I think, you know, I, I have to, you know, based on some of the things I've read, and not all of them are, you know, like that. Or, you know, many I've read reviews that are much like what Debbie is saying. But I think there's always this preconception of what a cop movie is Mm -hmm. supposed to be. And this just isn't it. And I think what Debbie said earlier, that some people don't understand noir particularly. (laughs) I mean, my, my first definition of noir is when a character makes a decision that they know can and probably will lead to their destruction. And that's exactly what Mike Thornton does. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it has one of the strongest basic tenets of noir in it. Mm-hmm. But to read some reviews, I think they still think noir is supposed to be black and white. I, 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 don't, I clearly I don't know true. what they're talking about. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. I think their, their interpretations of, of genre film in general are very, very simplistic. And, uh, and uh, it, 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 was, it was really... Uh, I mean, I was longing for the great days of Roger Ebert, who always gave my films good reviews. Even those days, I was criticized about, you know, for, for. I remember on the Roger Ebert show, I can't remember who the guy was with Roger Ebert on the original show, you know, the two critics. Gene, right? Gene, Siskel. Gene Siskel. Sorry, what was his name? Gene Siskel. Gene Siskel, right, right. Siskel and, and Ebert. And, and Siskel was saying, well, uh, it was a movie that I made that was in Sundance and Cannes and the competition called This World of the Fireworks. And um, uh, Siskel said, oh, well, this director has much more style than substance, right? That was the criticism back then because he was a, because he's a music video director. So I got lambasted for, coming, for being a, one of the first music video directors and having had a long career directing huge music videos. And Ebert replied, Roger Ebert, that uh, uh, why don't we stop looking at this guy's movies for the, for, with the way it's shot, and let's look at it for what is shot. And he really got into my film, and it was an incredibly good 
review at the time, and I love Roger since uh, Roger ever ever since. Well, and I think you're in the same boat along in uh, another director whom is a dear friend and I love beyond belief, Mark Pellington. Mark, a long time, a long time music video director and so many of his films, people just reviewers and critics alike, it just pan some of his stuff. And it's like, really? You know, he did a film, I, I Melt With You, which is just so powerful. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a big part of the problem is that so many of the reviewers out there, when they look at these films, they don't have enough life experience behind them or enough cinematic education behind them to understand these films. If it's not something mm-hmm. that they've experienced or happened within the within the short brief 20 years or maybe 30 years they've been on the planet well forget about it uh yeah uh you know i even worked with a producer once on a film that i was an independent film and and he proudly proclaimed to me that he wouldn't watch anything that was made after the year 2000 or before the year 2000 (laughs) and uh and i i I stood there just flabbergasted this was on set i was just Uh, utterly gobsmacked by this, by this, you know, refusal, conscious refusal to educate themselves on the history of film and why what you see in the period that you decide to watch actually works because of everything that came before. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. just and I mean, I had a publicist a uh, number of years ago, many years ago, LA Film Festival, and some of us were standing around. We were talking about musicals and. Uh, films and I brought up an American in Paris and singing in the rain and this publicist a film publicist stood there straight faced and said what are those I haven't heard of them it's moments like that where I decide I got to keep my sense of humor that's that's just it if you if you don't laugh you're gonna cry but you know, yeah, well, that's that's how I felt like reading a lot of these reviews. I mean, they completely missed the allusions to uh, to film history and uh, and mm-hmm. and a lot of what I was trying to do in this film. It's but you know, John's right. There were there were a couple of good reviews. I mean, the one reviewer compared to Scorsese, um, I, so that was that was that made up for. I, I'm just wondering um, how how these things aggregate out, John, on um, on. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes and all these, you know, because we really live in a strange time. We don't really live in a time when most of the people reviewing films are film reviewers. They just seem to be uh, clickbait mm-hmm. accumulators, right? Isn't that what they Yes, kind of, yes, very know, much so, which explains an awful lot of yeah. the reviews or they can. Well, I have, I have my review done, but I decided to wait till after today's show to run it. Um, oh, great. Yeah, so, look forward to it today. No, mine is done, so it will go up later tonight along with the audio from this live show when it will go out as a great. podcast. Um, so it will give people a lot of context. Um, but I have to say, one of, the, one of the strong suits here, Michael, is your cinematography, is what Chris does in tandem, hand-in-hand hand with the production design. Um Going back to the underfunded police and these, the warehouse for confidential informants for undercover work, 
I love the fact that we really have a 70s vibe with, particularly with Mel Gibson's office, mm-hmm. with the fake mm-hmm. panel on the walls, the fan, mm-hmm. the cigarette. It's a 70s vibe even, that shows just how underfunded some of these departments are because here this is technically in the 90s. So everything is still very antiquated. And then you bring in this great greenish-yellow color wash anytime we're there. And if we're in the actual room with the undercover officers, with Tom, with Mike, and with their associates, it gets colder, steely, but still with a slight green tinge. Mm -hmm. But you counter that beautifully. Whenever we are at Tom Moran's home, with Tom and wife Anna and their son, it's bright, it's open, you've got natural light. There's this incredible contrast visually mm-hmm. that translates emotionally in a very metaphoric way. And that is stunning to see unfold in this film because it speaks volumes. Now you really get it. That's exactly what we were trying to do. I mean, you know, period movies in general... It, the, the, the criticism I got was very similar to, again, to This World and the Fireworks, which is also a period movie set in the 1950s. In order to depict a period clearly, right, and accurately, there's a lot of residue from the uh, prior decade. Mm-hmm. You know, the 1990s is, looks more like the 80s and 70s because, you know, everything is not up to date. So you have to kind of find that kind of environment to successfully depict the period you're showing it, it looks look, looks older again coupled with the underfunded um, environment that these guys work in and you know what I'd like to use because most of these environments are lit by fluorescent lights that don't work properly and have mismatched fluorescent kind mm-hmm. of colors it gives it that weird greeny tinge uh, that, that's pretty much how these uh, um these environments look. Yep. They're very drab and very oppressive. And uh, and the color palette to me is, is the emotional basis of, of, of all my films. And I'm very careful in I, how I execute that. Yeah. So it's really nice to hear you understand the film so clearly. I, I, I strongly advocate getting your review out there as quickly <laughs> as possible. Because <laughs> your view will be aggregated on Rotten Tomatoes. Correct? Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Great. Uh, How how challenging was the casting on this one, Michael? I mean, I'm sure you... Well, casting me was easy. I was going to say, he probably had to (laughs) twist your arm and bribe you, John. Um, (laughs) But this cast is amazing. You've got Mel Gibson, Dominic Purcell, Nick Stahl. This is an incredible performance from Nick. Kate Bosworth, Russell Richardson, and, of course, a very... Probably that a lot of people will overlook Eric Valdez as oh, yeah, the confidential mm-hmm. informant. But let me start with yeah, you. They all crush it, don't they? Oh my! I'll tell you, this is one of Nick's best performances. Mel mm-hmm. is perfect. Everything that we always saw Martin Riggs make fun of in Superior Officers and about the PD in the Lethal Weapon franchise, he now takes all of that. And he just dives in, and he now becomes the very thing another character of his made fun of. And watching that, 
is really amazing. And you believe every second. And watching him go toe-to-toe with Russell Richardson's uh, Officer Lerner from IA, that is just, I love the volley, the back-and-forth volley between the two. And the fact, Michael, that you bookended the film with that, pretty much, with the opening between Hickey and Lerner, the end, so we know something horrible is going on. Then we see everything unfold. You have the beautiful voiceovers in there. And then we see the ultimate come-to-Jesus moment for Lerner at the end um, where he gets lectured. Um, Just, I love that. But these performances are just uh, first rate. I mean, just blow me away. But now, John, besides getting your arm twisted, you know, what is it about the character of Joe Mangano the police union rep that speaks to you. You are just perfect in the role. I love the sem- the funeral scene. Um, you're calm. You're compassionate. Just wonderful. And then you're also, you get very flippant and have a really cool attitude in an interrogation scene. Well, um, it, it's kind of two levels. You know, Michael is one of my best friends. And I've watched him for years as he was putting this movie together, a lot of fits and starts, as will happen. I've been down that road myself. I know mm-hmm. what it feels like. And anytime somebody makes a movie, that's something to celebrate just because of the effort to do it. In the end, there are two reasons. One, I, I, I felt that a character like Mangano, you know, serves, every character serves a purpose. Mm-hmm. His purpose was very clear to be the support team for yep. these cops yep. and, you know, to help them through what becomes very, very difficult obstacles. And that includes the families. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to give a shout out to Kate Bosworth because she was absolutely oh. lovely um, with virtually no preparation. The other side of it is, you know what, I, when, when your friend reaches out, <laughs> says, you mm-hmm. know, does it when he didn't say it, but, but basically it's a friendly face who he knows can work fast, man, I'm there. You know, mm-hmm. I'll help my friend out anytime. Well, and just- um, but it turns out he also had a very compelling project to put together here. And frankly, I wanted to be a part of it. And I wanted to work around people like Nick and Mel and Kate because I don't always get the chance to do that. I'm a big admirer of all of them. And uh, earlier I equated Michael's style with the great Ken Russell, who was a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, it was something that I just wanted to be a part of. So if I can fulfill the need, and as my mom said, find a need and fill it, um, mm-hmm. then, I'm, then I'm going to. And that's why I showed up. Well, you also said something very important whenever we're talking indie films, John, and that was you can work fast. And that is due completely to or 99% to all of your work in daytime television because no question that moves yeah. no question. at like lightning when you're filming daytime TV. Um, yeah, you know, and uh, you know, Michael was up against a very tough schedule, and I thought, well, you know what, man, if I can help him meet his day, then then I'll <laughs> then I'll do that. 
Mike, I don't know. Ask him. Why did he want me to play? <laughs> yeah, Michael, why in the world would you want John in your film? <laughs> well, John, John's a consummate actor, and I really do believe that a lot of the daytime soap actors are so good and so well-trained, and they spend so much time getting to exercise their craft. And then again, they're like underappreciated um, by the critics. You know, they, they get masses of... Uh, of, of fan support, but not necessarily critical support. And that's just the nature of, you know, the, the kind of pervasive snobbery that, uh, that, that, that these, uh, in many cases, undeserving uh, uh, quasi-elitist critics, you know, try and, uh, <laughs> you know, take for themselves. So I always wanted to work with John. John, my son, is a director as well. And he's made a couple of movies that are really, really good. And uh, John played them. And I've just been a big fan of John's work. Besides which, he's such a great friend and he's such an intelligent human being and a consummate artist. And it was just a question of, you know, finding the, the right part, shooting it in the right place. Because often, you know, my films in the past were like shot in places like Budapest and uh, um, uh, 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 Serbia or <laughs> Bulgaria and all sorts of places where it's very hard to get actors that you know shipped over there, uh, you know, unless they're um, like the lead actor in the film. So, this, you know, the, the stars aligned and we were able to, to make this happen. And, you know, it's, it, it's, I've, I've wanted John for many of my projects and, and I intend to work with him for many more. It's almost like, like when you work with them, they're such great actors. It's like having an ensemble cast that you can work with time and time again. The same thing with Dominique Purcell. This is like my second or third movie I've done with him. And uh, it's just great when your friends are such talent and you can get to work with them. Yeah. Especially when you're on such a fast schedule. It, it certainly makes it uh, a lot easier. And, I'm, and, and, you I'm a... that, and you know they're going to deliver. And, uh, and uh, John was just wonderful in this film. I, I really do think the whole, the whole cast was incredible. Um, Nick Stahl, what an amazing actor. I mean, you know, I really look forward to working with him again. I think you were absolutely correct about singing up uh, Eric Valdez, um, who was very, very believable. Oh, my as, God. As, as the junkie, senor. Mm-hmm. And given that Eric is one of the most clean-living human beings I've ever met <laughs> in my life. I mean, you actually—you really realize how great an actor he is when you actually meet him, because there, you know, he, you know, he's uh, he's, he's married to uh, his wife is a is a is a famous radio uh, jock in uh, in Texas, and they have uh, in Dallas, and they have they're, 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 Eric's biggest um, uh, uh, vice is is his he likes to race his Porsche. On the weekends, <laughs> you know, he's like, he's absolutely a family man. I mean, he, he really took that role and made it. He's on the cast is wonderful in this film. I really think that. Yeah, I mean, really this fun. is a superb cast, and each person is perfectly cast as well. Um, it's one thing when you can get a great cast like this together. It's another when they are cast appropriately, and each actor knows how to bring forth the greatest emotion to serve the character and the story. And all of the, your entire cast has done that, Michael. 
Oh yeah, Russell Richardson. Russell Richardson, who plays um, Lerner, was another extraordinary actor. Oh. Who the way he brings that emotional turn at the end of the movie when he when he goes from from the 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 the, the antagonist to uh, dropping the charges against Thornton. It's really really a powerful emotional turn, and, and he, he doesn't miss a beat. Um, I'm just so surprised that trained critics who watch a lot of movies can't see these things when they they praise movies like like the the 25th version of of of, uh, of the Born Identity, whatever they see, you know, like those like those, those <laughs> endless endless recycling of of the same movie over and over again, as if these things are like you know, like like masterpieces by Akira Kurosawa. You know, like like the the twenty seventh iteration of John Wick. You know, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. we the might latest, get there. The latest amusement park for a movie. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. I mean, the one critic compared this film to well, you should rather go and see John Wick one hundred and three or whatever the, the the latest version is. And I'm going. You mean uh, the phone in John Wick? Uh, you know. $400 million paycheck for Keanu Reeves. Not that I've got anything against Keanu Reeves. I'd be very happy to You'd be churning out John Wicks too, year after year, but they'll pay me that kind of money. But uh, to compare a movie that is obviously a small indie film with uh, a very heartfelt emotional core mm-hmm. uh, to a movie that is, that is just a, a corporate Entity. I mean, movies made at the level of John Wick are—they're not art. They're like making, uh, you know, like a packet of M and M's. Like, what color are we going to put in the M and M's packet this week? It's so corporate, and it's designed to be a corporate film. And they're just—they're two totally different enterprises. I think you know we've we've definitely lost the ability to uh, for of critics to actually be critical. And I think they need to start by being critical of them, of their own practice. Mm-hmm. Right? That's where criticism needs yeah. to start. This, as this, we need a kind of metacriticism. And, you yeah. Know. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I think. Uh, you know, there's we need, we could all be reminded <clears throat> that critique is the basis of a critic's job, yes. and there exactly. I don't see a critique. I would I would like to speak just a moment though, Debbie, to your comment about performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that there's, there's, there's a, everything comes down to environment, especially mm-hmm. in an independent film um, on a truncated schedule. You know, one, Michael has to create an environment where everybody feels like somebody knows what's going on. Michael mm-hmm. steps on a set and he knows exactly what he's going to shoot. And you can feel that there's a confidence in, in what's, what's going to be done today mm-hmm. and that gives even somebody with great resourceful powers like a mel gibson a real freedom yeah. to to say okay i'm gonna i'm gonna I, here's what i'm bringing in and i'm gonna do it and if i'm encouraged to keep doing it that's what i'm gonna keep doing michael's very very good at that um you know i'm sorry for another ken russell comparison but you know ken I never auditioned he, he would go with who he felt was right for the role mm-hmm. and would trust them to do the job 
that he didn't know how to do. Yeah. And so, you know, Michael knows that he's bringing in good actors. Now, in the case of Russ, uh, Russell, uh, you know, he, I think he had four days to, <laughs> to prep oh my the God. lead movie. Yeah. He did. And well, we found him. We rode out on a plane together out to New Mexico and we got talking in the car. And he was really pretty freaked out that he wasn't going to be ready. So I said, you know what? Don't worry about it. Um, we'll, let's get together after dinner tonight. We'll run all your lines. So people who want to make an independent film, and we did, and we did it the next day as well. People who want to jump in and make an independent film will help each other do it. Yes. You know, we want everyone to succeed. Mm -hmm. And since Russell's become a friend, and I'm glad for it. Um, you know, Nick, I rode in with him on his first day, and uh, he wasn't quite familiar with, with Michael's work yet. Mm. And I said, well, here, watch, his, watch This World of Fireworks and watch Sea of Darkness, and you'll get a real good idea of who Michael is. And he did. And, uh, and of course, you saw Nick said to himself, somewhere along the line, he must have said, I can trust this guy. Mm-hmm. And he created, and I mean, I, I, I'm with you. I think it's one of the best performances Nick has ever given. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think so you know, too. so kudos to Michael for creating the environment that allows everybody feel like they can be trusted to do their thing. You know, unfortunately, I'm going to have to let you guys go in just a minute here for my next guest, who is an independent filmmaker with a short that's going to be at LA Shorts Festival next week. But before I go, John. Every General Hospital listener out there, and they all eventually find their way to my show because I have, I've had so many of you on the show over the over the past decade, and even longer. I mean, I worked with Finola on Staying Alive, what almost forty years ago, thirty five years oh ago, um, and and Perry was just on the show a couple months ago. Tyler Christopher's been on twice. Ian Buchanan has been on twice. Uh, and every we all and Wes Ramsey's been on and it's always talking about these little independent films that you guys all managed to squeeze in in your off time from the soap. But I've always got to ask, you know, what can you tell us? Are Kevin and Laura going to have fun in Chechnya? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> the, the show is dark for the entire month of July. We don't come back again until August. And I, I think. Jeannie is gone until September. Yeah. So I, I, you know, they don't tell me anything. I'll tell you. Now, I, is it easier for you now just having to worry about playing one character than vacillating between psychotic Ryan and wonderful Kevin? <laughs> it's an easier work schedule, but I'll be honest, I really miss playing Ryan. You I, so much fun. One of the most delicious villains I have ever watched. I mean, in all honesty, oh, my gosh. Well, guys, this has been a pure joy to have both of you on the show today for oh, Confidential Informant. I, I, hope you'll, you I hope you'll both come back again in the future on whatever project. Um, oh, well, I, I tend to do many more films with John. I mean, it's wonderful having a friendship that also can be realized creatively in, in this fashion. It really is fun. Uh, and everybody can now see Confidential in, uh, Informant. I know it's on Comcast, so it's on demand. It's on digital. Uh, and all people have to do is find it, watch it, and enjoy it. And ignore all the noise. 
Yeah, you can it's find it. It's also playing in uh, selected theaters select around theaters. the country. If you can see it on the big screen, I highly recommend it. But yeah, it's much. Yeah, you can definitely see it at Cinema Village in New York City and on AMC's around the country in, in theaters. I think it's still there. And um, uh, video on demand on Amazon Prime. It's actually the number one film on Amazon Prime right now, which is kind of cool. nice. Some, some As it should it. be. As it should <laughs> be, guys. Oh my! Thanks. Hey, Debbie, thank you so much for having us. John, thank you so much for making this happen. Michael, uh, I adore your work, and I can't, I can't wait to see. I, I have seen your work before, Out for a Kill, Steven Seagal's work. Um, I saw one of your surfing documentaries, too. I can't remember. Heavy Water, yeah. I can't, yeah, that's probably the one. Heavy Water. I, I, I said Sea of Darkness. I meant Heavy Water. Well, these guys, yeah. he's done both, so... But I did both, yeah. oh, guys! Uh, well, I look forward to reading your review, Debbie, and like getting it out there so it uh, can counterbalance the uh, <laughs> rug <rock to laughs> yeah. the algorithm. We need to fight the algorithm, I guess. It it shall be done, Michael. I promise, John. Already, I promise you now. It shall be done. <laughs> and you know what? I love that you're a fan of Mark Pennington. I I really <laughs> love his movies. Such a great guy, and like me, comes from a real MTV background. He's a really cool guy. Yeah, very talented. I've known yeah. Mark since yeah, since I'm his music you. video days. So, yeah. gentlemen, cool thank you, thank you so much, and you have a you wonderful rest you. of your week. And hopefully, right, thanks so much. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was Michael Oblowitz and John Lindstrom talking confidential informant. And now, the very patient, patient, wonderful Benjamin Pollock is with us. Hello, Benjamin. Hello. Thank you so much for bearing with us and uh, uh, no running a little behind, you know, with having two guests on the show uh, talking sure. about the same film, get a little bit backed up sometimes. But mm -hmm. boy, oh boy, whatever happened to Johnny Faith? This brought me to tears. This has all oh. the all the feels. It tugs at the heart. The uh, Alan Chodakowski, your cinematographer. This yes. is beautiful. Oh yes, uh, he is. He is quite a. He's quite a thing. Yes, he is. I, I yep. mean, it's just the poignancy and the heart in Thank this you. film. It's twenty four and a half minutes long, and it yes. speaks volumes. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I I just I watched it I think three times in a row. Oh, <laughs> well I've seen it a few times myself. So yes, I, I know. Yes. Just so beautiful. Talk, Thank you. T tell the audience. Tell the listeners. What is the story of whatever happened to Johnny Faith? How would you wow. describe okay. it? Okay, um, so uh, Johnny Faith is, um, um, I guess the fair thing to say is I've always wanted to do a, a real drama, you know, that was close to my heart. And um, I had I'd lost my father uh, you know, before I had found this story. And um, um, I have um, a, fa a father-in-law who is much, very much like the character Johnny Faith. And um, so I, I wrote a story really about a, a man who... Um, who's human and has these human frailties and um, 
discovers really who he is at the last few stages of his life and uh, wants to right a wrong that he knows he did, you know, that he made on his own fears. And, uh, and he does. He, he, he does. And we're not going to give away what these things are. But right. <laughs> what I love, the visual grammar and the structure Thank you. Of this film, because we have moments where it looks like Johnny is breaking the fourth wall, talking to us. But right. in fact, he's really reliving moments from his past in his mind. Yes. And you create that the visual grammar that you and Alan bring in there with dissolving from present right. to past, and but speaking in the present to the past is so almost ethereal. In right. The... We worked on that at, uh, for, for quite a bit. And uh, the, the, the thing is, the, the script itself was only 14 pages, but it was eight and a half months in the making and once we started filming. And, um, you know, it was a lot of time in between the past and the present in terms of filming. And mm -hmm. so we had to really cement in what we were going to do and what we wanted, you know, we wanted the audience to understand, um, you know, practically, you know. Yes. So, and Alan is such a wonderful cinematographer uh, and a, <clears throat> really, um, uh, you know, between the two of us, we were able to, I think, really nail that. Th those things look like they're happening at the same time, but yeah. they're not. I mean, you know, it's not even close. it is just... It's elegantly done. It's exquisitely done. Um, Thank you. And that adds so much gravita emotional gravitas uh, yeah. and poignancy. It, 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 it's classic filmmaking, right? Mm -hmm. It's like uh, it's the stuff that they taught me at AFI. You know, at, uh, at, uh, it's really classic filmmaking and, and going for the narrative and understanding the narrative, building on the narrative and, and, and understanding, you know, how that's going to translate to the audience and, you know, the, the right narrative um, rhythm, and I think we, well, I think if anything, we really, um, we really nail the narrative rhythm mm -hmm. because it's only twenty four and a half minutes long. It's a lot going on in there. There is and, a uh, lot, but you hit every. Yeah. The pacing is fabulous, and you hit all these key emotional beats. And what I find really lovely about the film is that you keep your lensing bright, light, bright, and beautiful. With yeah. slightly uh, slightly increasing, upping the saturation a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it really buoys the emotion so that we yeah. never feel depressed. We, we feel some sadness. Yes, people, right. when you watch it, when you see this at L.A. Shorts Fest, have some tissues in your pocket. I'm just telling you. <laughs> Uh, you've been warned. Have some tissues right. in your pocket, because I, I think that's what makes the film successful. Because we we have at least three notes in the film that that will more than likely affect you. Right? Uh, yeah. I mean, so yeah. yeah, and then a film that length, if we can if we can get you to giggle once or or, or sniffle once, we're a success. You know, and I think we do it more than once. Well, you definitely yeah. you definitely bring in. Some giggles, most particularly with Wayne Knight as right? as music agent Larry Cohen, Newman yeah. himself. 
Uh, Isn't he spectacular? Oh, my God. I didn't know. I knew he was cast in here. I did not know what was coming. And the minute he gets on screen and he answers his phone and it's Johnny Faith on the end of the line. And Mm. first he's hesitant. But then when he finds out there may be millions of dollars to be had, turns on a dime and just it's just flat out funny. It's funny. He's funny. He's funny and real. I yes. Think what? What? Uh, yeah. I mean, because he surprised me. I, when we started doing the first half of the scene, uh, the depth of character that he really went to. I mean, you know, we we we, we talked about it and uh, and we you know we we visualized it. But when he got on set, it, it really became very very real for him, and it was a wonderful experience working with him. And and uh, you know when he when he. Really, he's hurt. You know, he's a man who's hurt. His, his brother hurt him, you know, and uh, and you see it. You really see his pain, you know, mm-hmm. before the funny. And then it's funny. And then, yeah. it, and then it's really great. You know, yeah. and then it gets even more hilarious. Um, they, you know, as we're, he escalates the hilarity, actually. He does. So that if we break this into three acts within the 24 minutes, by the time we get down to the last five minutes... He ups yeah. the ante even more. Right. <laughs> one uh, more gun he fires. Yeah. One yeah. more, you know, yeah. comes out yeah. there. Now, Johnny Faith himself, played by Frank Noon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you. everybody has seen him. They'll recognize him immediately from all of his commercials, his one-offs um, in various yeah. TV series. Plus, he also is a professional musician. He has played with yeah. Def Leppard. Um, and he does his own singing in the film. There is a beautiful, beautiful end title Isn't song. He oh, Isn't my. He his voice yeah. he, is so amazing. He's all, right. I'll tell you a funny story. I'll tell you a funny story here. The, um, Jim Belushi wanted to play the lead. He wanted to play Johnny Faith, and mm-hmm. we wound we wound up talking for two two months or so. And uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, we couldn't come together on the money. We just didn't have enough money for this superstar to play the role. And I had originally, as I think I told you to begin with, written the part based on my father and my father-in-law. It was like mm-hmm. an amalgamation of those two men. And Frank Noon is my father-in-law. So oh my gosh! When I when things when things were looking their worst and we didn't look like we were going to make this film, and I actually went to the hospital because I had to have my gallbladder out, and um, they weren't letting me out, and I didn't know whether what was happening. I thought maybe I was sicker than I was. It turns out I was fine, but um, I just made a promise right there in the hospital that you know what I'm going to make this film. I'm going to make it with Frank Noon, and and that's what he came to pick me up that day, and I said you're you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we just started doing it. And he is so wonderful. And it's such the right choice because he wanted this. He, he, he wanted to show the world how awesome he is. And he did. You know, it I, was quite something. He captured, just he commands the screen, but he captures your attention and draws you in immediately yeah. when he comes on screen. Immediately. Yeah, he's just loaded with charisma. Loaded. I yeah. just, yeah. he lights up, which is also why you and Alan had to keep this film uh, from uh, practically light and bright 
as well as tonally because he lights up the screen. Uh, you yeah. could. There is no way you could cast him and make this a dark and dour film. Right. I I just don't right. see that happening. Right. One of the things we discussed too. I mean, one of the things about the character was that he was really on a doomed mission, and we certainly didn't want to depress the audience. I mean, you know, it's really you know you know sort of sort of, sort of from the beginning that things aren't right with him, and and uh, he never let his smile down. His spirit never went down. Just like my father. When he started, wasn't doing well. You'd never know it because he, he always had a smile on his face, and you could never. He never complained, and that's Johnny Faith. I mean, Johnny Faith you know. gets punched in the eye by by you know in a bar. He's right. beat up, and he's still smiling, still yeah. smiling. Um, yeah. Just he is Frank is just amazing Isn't in he? Isn't in this role. And the minute he came on screen, I recognized him from all all the times I've seen him pop up in, in one-offs and, and in ads. Sure, um, sure. But I'd never seen him do a complete part, a complete right. role all the way through. Sure, uh, he's done theater, and that's where I've seen him uh, perform, you know, you know, sort of off-Broadway-esque, off if you will, in L.A. But, um, uh, so I knew he, I knew he could do it. I knew he had the charisma and, you know, just somebody has to give him that, that opportunity, you know? And of course, who else, and, uh, do, who else do you bring in here? Bruce Greenwood. Uh, yeah. Um, there's a story there too. Oh, let's hear the story right? about Bruce. All right. All right. Well, first Bruce Greenwood is the most professional actor I have ever met in my entire life. I mean, I, and I've been around, I'm almost 60 and, uh, and, uh, I, you know, I've, I've worked with many, and he's just the most professional, just the most professional and really like a faucet. You turn him on and he, he, he pours out this brilliant acting and then that's it. You know, it's just uh, amazing. He actually read the script and also wanted to play the lead, Johnny Faith. And as it turned out, he, he uh, was also this amazing musician and singer and songwriter. And so he sent me his music and as, as you hear the music in the piece, it's fabulous. That's that's. I'm sorry. It's that fabulous. That's Bruce. It's yeah, fabulous. fabulous. Yeah, right. So uh, anyway, he got cast uh, on the resident, and uh, you know, before we could sort of work out anything else, he had to he had to go. So uh, that was uh, that. You know, so he, that's why he didn't play the lead. But then I called him later when I was going, and I'm like, I know you really like this production. You like the piece. Would you consider playing the doctor? And he said, Yeah, of course, right away. And uh, we worked out a schedule, and he came in and played the doctor. And then, and then when I edited it, because I also edited the film, uh, you know, I used temporarily some of his music in the bar. And then it became so ingrained in what I had done that I begged him to use the music, and he let me use the music. So he's a super talented guy. Well, I mean, talk about music. I mean, Frank is writing and performing. Bruce has written right. songs and performed them. Then yeah. who do you get in here as maybe musical icing on the cake? You got Rusty yeah. Anderson playing himself. The right, the Rusty. He is the most awesome guy. He is, uh, you know, you know Paul McCartney's guitar. Yes. And, and he, right, he is. He is super friendly, super nice guy. Uh, we became we met at a party. He's actually not. He doesn't live too far away from me here in Malibu. And um, uh, we uh, we became friends, and uh, I asked him one day if he'd be interested in being in my film, and he was like, "You bet." <laughs> so, and then he wrote a, he wrote music, which was even more insane. Uh, you know, so, uh, 
Benjamin, how did you how did you hit this great musical trifecta here? I come from a musical background. I think I'm just drawn to it. You know, my mother and father were both professional opera singers, and uh, you know I've done work with NXS and the guys from Smash Mouth, and uh, mm-hmm. you know all that when I was directing music videos. So uh, you know it's sort of my thing. <laughs> oh my! I because that when I saw Rusty Anderson pop up, I'm like, oh my god. Right, isn't he awesome? And and he, you know, he's he's an actor too. Suddenly, I mean, yeah. wow, you know, who knew? Amazing. Because uh, yeah. before I knew him as being in as part of Paul McCartney's band, I knew him as a session guitarist. Right. So, right. Um, I'm one of those strange people that you know. I grew up in the days of the Wrecking Crew, so oh, very cool. You know, you pay attention to your session people. Sure, sure. Uh, and, yeah. and he's the most amazing guy. I, you know, what can I say? And super talented. Wow. Yeah. Now, you know, as you came up with this and you got this written and you are directing, you're writing and you're editing. Yes. Did you storyboard? I, did you storyboard this out? Did you shot list it out? Yes. Yes. Um, uh, yes. So, uh, you know, Alan and I are both classically trained. So, um, um, you know, certainly in the more difficult um complex scenes we we you know we we went started drawing stick figures and uh, and you know wound up doing like every shot and of course when you get out in the field uh, you know we're loose and we, we we use that as our frame and then make sure that we're getting what we're getting and obviously the, the you know the, the the reality of the of the scene whatever that is will dictate if we make any changes but yeah, it was really very well thought out before we did it now because you were also editing as you were shooting were yes. you kind of doing an edit in your head, or oh, most definitely, yes, yes. It's, it's a, a massive advantage, I believe. It's the director, it's the editor. Mm-hmm. I started as an editor. I went to the American Film Institute and got a master's degree in narrative film editing, uh, and uh, I was actually the last year to edit on film, which was uh... fun. But anyway, so but but editing is is you know, where your structure is. You know, it's where all the narrative comes together. It's where the rhythm happens. You know, and um, uh, you know, Alan gives me those wonderful tools to be able to use for my rhythm. It's just so, so wonderful. But yes, knowing how I was going to put it together, knowing the edit uh, in my head first was uh, a huge advantage because, you know, we're, we, we, we're not a big budget film, so we want to economize. But the, on the other hand, we didn't want to shoot, you know, more than a page and a half a day. We wanted to give that a kind of attention to every theme. Mm-hmm. So uh, and then the more complex things like in the um, uh, in the bar, um, we, we really should have shot listed that out and then looked at a million bar scenes, famous bar scenes, you know, from Quentin Tarantino all the way down to whomever, you know, and just uh, uh, just to see how it was filmed and the feel and the milieu, you know, just to, to get the grittiness of that bar uh, and, and, and make it as real as possible. So, yeah, there was a lot of work that went into that with Alan and, and myself. Well, I can testify that uh, your bar scenes were very realistic. Uh, Thank you. Based on personal experience, I can, I can <laughs> right. say they were very, very authentic. Now, you mentioned something really important with the edit, and that's the rhythm. But we've yeah. also got the rhythm of the music itself oh, yeah. in this film. How oh, yeah. important, how did that inform your editing process? Because oh, well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys who, who finds the music first before I do the editing. Uh, and so it doesn't necessarily have to be the music that I'm going to use, but I find the, 
the milieu or the the, the right tonal piece and uh, and start using that to find a narrative structure within each scene. So each scene has got a sort of, you know, a hill and a valley and a hill and a valley. And, and uh, finding the right music helps you be, r- realize that narrative rhythm, right? And mm-hmm. then, of course, you've got to make sure you know where you're going. But, I mean, you know, the, to be able to bring the right amount of happiness and the right amount of despair without hurting anybody mm-hmm. and hurting the audience. And I think that's what the narrative rhythm is. And you really succeed with it, and you take us on the emotional journey. We feel yeah. that. But what you also do is you never linger too long. You you stay right. on a beat just enough so we feel it. Right. And right. Then... I was blessed because I, I, I had such great performances. And when I was in the editing room, uh, even when I was on set, I mean, I got to tell you, uh, I'll tell you a quick one. Of course, Debbie Pollack is the first woman that you see. Mm-hmm. And she used, was the. Uh, she plays Joan. She was in the. In, Right, she was in Sixteen Candles. Yep. She plays the the woman who gets hugged at the end, you know, big breasted woman at the end with the Asian guy. I forget the, the scene, but it's the famous scene. That's a famous scene. And um, uh, uh, she, we rehearsed a few times. She got on set, started to say goodbye to him in this scene, you know, the subtext, and it was so real. I had to call cut because I I, I was all steamed up. I was I was I was losing it. I was like, oh my god. This is really good. She's really good. She set the bar for our acting mm-hmm. at a level of Meryl Streep on steroids. And it was like, I couldn't believe how well and how brilliant it was coming together. So that helped a lot when I was doing the narrative structure because every tone, every note that I wanted to go for was believable. Mm-hmm. Well, and what, just you watching know. her, um, her face, when she's asking Johnny, she's going, are you leaving? You you can't be leaving. Right. Are, are you leaving? And it's right. this look of shock and sadness and heartbreak yeah. on her face. Right. And I love that Alan holds the camera on her face a couple times in those opening scenes. And yeah. but then we also get the joy. You know, there's there's yeah. the moment of joy. Yeah. Um. When Johnny yeah. gifts her with something. Yeah. And I think while, while we're talking about Alan, I think it's important to say that, you know, Alan's cinematography was as much a character in the film yes. as any, any other of the actors, right? It, and it was always with us. So, um, you know, it, we took our time and, uh, and allowed, especially in the editing room, allowed the cinematography to speak, allowed the shot to play out, and, and, and not to go for, for quickness of the yeah. scene, but to feel the cinematography helping us move through that narrative rhythm also. Mm-hmm. And that was so huge. And that's something Alan and I talked about a lot. And Alan is really one of the most talented un, unsung cinematographers so far. I mean, it's just like I, I can't wait for him to explode oh. uh, and, and other stuff because he is super talented. He's, a, he's like a real artist. You know, and it's such a pleasure to work with a guy like that. Yeah, after you know, seeing this see the, film. You know, the, the many levels of cinematography. I can't wait to see more of his work. Um, Me too. Me because too. I'm looking at those scenes where Johnny is walking through the desert and under a yeah. hot sun, and the camera sits there and just 
slowly follows, but you go widescreen on that, so we really get this metaphoric sense of loneliness or aloneness, yeah. um, which are two different things. But sure. it just, it speaks, and it's just so beautiful to watch unfold. Yeah. Um, it's almost as if you don't want to breathe because you're going to disrupt that moment of seeing that scene. Just really right. incredible. And I've got to ask you, Benjamin, you know, because you've done, you come out of music videos, you've done other shorts. Um, yes. You've done uh, your doc out of Malibu. But yep. was there a learning curve for whatever happened to Johnny Faith? Because this is a narrative, a, nar- a dramatic narrative short. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm a writer, um, and um, um, so I'm, I'm used to uh, narrative. But yeah, no, this was a, this was definitely the hardest thing to do for me, because in a drama, all you have is the narrative. If mm-hmm. you know, in a comedy, you got jokes. In a, in, a, in a horror film, you have the frights and the, and the scares, and, and and that could save your film. But in a drama, all you have is your gut, and and every little piece that went into it. And if the moment you don't believe a character or you're out of the narrative, like, hey, this isn't really possible, you lose and, or, and it's over. So it's really hard to do. And was there a learning curve? Yeah. Wow. It was, but it was nose down and, and total commitment and, 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 and never giving up on that vision and making sure that vision was right. Mm-hmm. So it was, yes, it was quite a, quite a different approach. And it was a lot of fun. What would you say is the greatest thing you learned about yourself as a filmmaker in making whatever happened to Johnny Faith? That I could be a serious filmmaker, that I could be a serious filmmaker. I think, uh, you know, doing doing uh, music videos and and comedies and even horror stuff um, fun. But, um, you know, there's a craft in filmmaking that may not necessarily survive and and that was mm-hmm. this classic filmmaking you know to to understand a, a narrative um you know and how a narrative will affect the person or watching it and not just trying to come up with some entertainment but, but but trying to sort of touch parts of people inside you know like their soul and mm-hmm. uh, um that's an, a kind of becoming a lost art i think I, you know I, I the older i get the less i see of it so mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah. I I agree with you. So I, I would be remiss not to ask you about your costuming for the character yeah. of Johnny Faith. It looked like the boot, the cowboy boots, and the, the jacket came right out of nudies when it was still right. hanging out there on Lancashire. Right, and that's something that that's Alice K. Joseph. She's awesome, and she was also the production designer, and um, she's a multi-talented young lady. Uh, but yeah, when we came up with um, Johnny Faith, the idea was to keep him blue mm-hmm. and, and, and as blue as possible in terms of you know his his look. And um, I, I wanted Western, and she went straight to this thrift shop and found this costume, and it was just like that's him, <laughs> that's the guy. I just and interesting enough, when he put that costume on for the first time, Frank Noon, when he put that on, he just became the character 100 percent i mean you know he he saw himself and suddenly bing he was there 
Well, you, we so. even see that in in the first act of the film. When yeah. first we see him with his trailer and he's taking stuff out of it and or his trailer home and but then he goes to his car and he gets out his ja- the jacket and he puts it on and it's like a totally different man. Yeah, he's ready. He's, he's ready. ready. He's ready to go on his you journey. Know, he's yeah. got it's his armor is on. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, I hope that those were very comfortable boots that he was wearing. Uh, he, they were not. He, <laughs> they, he, he complained about it a lot, and to this day complains about it. So he uh, he's bitter about it. But well, <laughs> it was the right thing to do. I actually that I I saw he was wearing those cowboy boots, and all I kept thinking, and they look almost like snakeskin. Um, right. But I'm thinking, oh God, I hope they're Tacovas because Tacovas are very comfortable. Obviously, these then were not Tacovas. So no, they were not, and they were not. He was well, he was upset, but you know, we got we made it. <laughs> oh God! Now, but, yes. the film is screening next week on the twentieth on Thursday yes. at LA Shorts yes. Fest. How exciting yes. is that for you? Uh, I'm I'm I, I'm I'm passing out. I'm that kind of excited. I, I um I the the thing about this film was that it was a a real passion project, and I never even thought about what would happen when it was done. So festivals and screenings, I never even considered because I just my mind wasn't there, you know. So and that we got any plaudits at all, it's just you know a surprise to me. So I. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to death to be able to see it on a big screen. I'm thrilled to be able to share it with people that way. Uh, and I'm also thrilled that we're being recognized, which is very nice. You know, so now I'm, is, I'm beside myself. Is this the, pre- the festival premiere? This is the premiere, yes. The premiere of That's the correct. film. Yes. So yes. it has not played anywhere else before. Nowhere else. This is Nowhere the else. world premiere. World premiere, yeah. Wow. And now, you know, I have to say this to you, but as soon as the reason I watched it so many three times in a row, I love it so much. I would love to see a feature about this character. I I kid you not. I would love to see a feature about Johnny Faith and even dive more into the relationship between Agent Larry Cohen and Johnny Faith. Right. Uh, right. And by the way, just a, just a, 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 a trivia moment. Uh, yes. The young fellow who plays Johnny Faith's son at the end, Jackson Rowden, um, is, um, oh, um, um, oh, okay, wait a minute. Um, Brolin, James, Bro, uh, James Brolin's cousin. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes, Josh Brolin's cousin. That's what he is, Josh Brolin's cousin. There it is. Hey, yes. you know all these acting families. You got to keep the got to right. keep it going. Right. right. You I know? actually cast him at Josh Brolin's house because my son and his daughter are in the same class, and they were at a birthday party. And while I was there, I met Jackson, and I cast him that day. Wow. I think yeah. Wow. This a lot of serendipitous things happened to get this film made, Benjamin. Yeah. Oh. Also, do you do you know who Fritz Coleman is? Yes, I do. Well, and, and I, I, I couldn't think of anybody else to do the news broadcast, but Fritz, and a, through a friend, he, he saw the script, and he not only said yes, 
but he insisted on doing the shot himself at his own studio and sending it to me. And he did. And he would refuse to charge me. Oh my goodness. And I'm, and I'm like, no, I have to pay you. It's a SAG film. And he said, well, whatever, you just pay me the minimum. Oh my. And God. I got to say, I don't want to talk about, you know, how amazing Bruce is, but he did something very similar. So, I mean, Bruce, Bruce put his love into this film, which was quite something. Well, it's obvious everybody put their love into this film. It's yeah. all there on screen, yeah. Benjamin. Um, Thank you. It truly is. I've had a couple other films that, that I've looked at for L.A. Shorts Fest, and so far, this is my only must-see festival film for L.A. Shorts Fest. Um, wow. If people are Thank only going to go see one slot of films, only see one short they need to make sure it's this one. Whatever happened to Johnny Faith? And finger, wow. I, I just, I can't wait to find out how. And I know Kim will tell me uh, how yes. the audience reacts. And uh, hopefully, maybe we'll even see this become a feature one day. It would be great. It would be great. Oh, Benjamin, I can't thank you enough. This has been thank such you. a joy to have you on the show today. And I hope you'll come back again one day. Uh, the next piece, you bet. I will. Well, Thank then, you very much. Well, then you better get to work. <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm doing it. My wife calls it surfing the void. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Benjamin, yeah. thank you, and have a wonderful time at the festival next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, awesome. Benjamin. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was writer, director, editor Benjamin Pollock. Whatever happened to Johnny Faith? World premiere, L.A. Shorts Fest, next week, July 20th. It is a beautiful, beautiful short film. And if you're in the L.A. area, please. And looking for something to see next week? Um, check out L.A. Shorts Fest. And uh, definitely check out Whatever Happened to Johnny Faith. Fabulous. Oh, well, that is all the time we have today. And, yes, we ran over again, as you all know that we always do. Um, huge, huge thanks to John Lindstrom uh, for coming on the show, for bringing Michael Oblowitz with him to talk about their film, Confidential Informant, which select theaters, on demand, Amazon Prime, digital. It really is a very, very good film. Um, see it. And of course, whatever happened to Johnny Faith next week at LA Shorts Fest. And we'll be back. We won't be here next week because I'm going to be celebrating my 65th birthday. So we'll be back on July the 24th. I'm not sure who's with us. I have four possibilities that are I'm tentatively holding slots for. But in the interim, more interview, exclusive interviews are up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. We'll have some more reviews out. One of them is going to be Confidential Informant later on tonight. So, until July 24th, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>